Welcome to the dinner party. This is your icebreaker. What happened when Ralph Waldo Emerson got too drunk? He was throwing up. Can I tell another one that is kind of related? Okay, um, why couldn't Henry David Thoreau leave his room? Because he was walled in. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano, and from APM American Public Media, this is The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from Cassie Ramon from indie band Vivian Girls. That'll help break the ice. Yeah. Later on, we'll hear a new tune from Cassie's side project, The Babies. Also, we'll speak with actress Rashida Jones, writer and star of the new movie Celeste and Jesse Forever. Plus, comedian Paul Shear lists his favorite TV parodies, and Reading Rainbow host LeVar Burton teaches you how to behave at dinner parties and book clubs. Of course. But first, reality. And if you were listening on the radio, this is where you'd hear the hourly NPR news. But you're listening by podcast, so you get to skip straight to fun. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Welcome to The Dinner Party, the culture show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. Later, Paul Shear, star of the Adult Swim comedy action series NTSF SDSUV, <laughs> tells us what that title means Good. and lists some of his favorite television parodies. I do think his show is a, a parody of CSI, FYI. CSI, FYI. I don't, yeah. I don't think I've heard of that one. I think this whole intro is maybe TMI. <laughs> Folks, it's a dinner party, so let's start with small talk. All week long, you've heard these headlines. Chick-fil-A restaurants were jammed with customers, and sidewalks were jammed with protesters. Kofi Annan has quit his post as special envoy to Syria. Michael Phelps became the most decorated Olympian ever. 19 medals. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are talking with Rehan Harmansi. She is an editor at BuzzFeed, the news and culture website. Rehan, what story are you going to be talking about this weekend? Well, I'm going to be talking about a new study which shows that chivalry is dead, and it actually has always been dead. Um, <laughs> oh. Apparently, the <laughs> true, the old adage, women and children first on shipwrecks, um, is not true. Really? So women and children are not put on the lifeboats first? Yeah. So a Swedish researcher went and dug up survival rates for over 100 shipwrecks. Um, That's a fun hobby. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's just got some free time. Um and it showed that women and children died the most on shipwrecks, children only surviving 15% of the time. Wow. Oh, no. Yeah. So chivalry might be dead, but at least we know it didn't drown. <laughs> Man, sometimes men are as lame as we're cracked up to be. <laughs> yeah. This could be a good thing for women, right, though? This means they are treated as equals, right? <laughs> well, they do think women and children first may have a sort of strange... Um, rationale. One researcher thinks it was designed to hurt the British suffrage movement by oh. saying, look, like, why do you need the right to vote? Um, already you're being treated better than men. Oh, <laughs> so it's like, see, see, ladies, like we save you in boats. Why would you want to also have the right to vote? Right. Historically, that was what this women and children first line was used for. Oh, voting my. or voting, you decide. <laughs> Uh, Rayhan Harmansi, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you, guys. And now, time for cocktails. Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our carbonated history lesson with booze. Fizzy. First, the history <laughs> part. This last week, back in 1887, a guy named L.L. Zamenhof published the Unua Libro, a.k.a. the first book. If you guessed it's an international translation of the Bible... You'd be wrong. 
mm. but you got the international translation part right. Michelle Philippi explains. L.L. Zamenhof spoke the international language of peace. In fact, he invented it. See, Zamenhof loved languages. His dad spoke Russian and taught German. His mom spoke Yiddish. And he grew up in Poland, speaking Polish. He was fluent in all of it and went on to learn at least five other tongues. But the same didn't go for most folks in his hometown. Russians, Poles, Germans, and Jews literally couldn't understand each other. So they fought with and feared each other instead. Zamenhof wished everyone could just get along. So he spent a decade inventing a new language, one that was easy to learn and wasn't tied to any one nationality. On July 26, 1887, he published it under the pen name Doctoro Esperanto, Dr. Hope. People around the world started learning Esperanto, but they didn't always have much to be hopeful about. Stalin suspected them of being spies. Hitler had Esperantists executed. By the 1950s, though, the UN recognized Zamenhof's language as a great tool for diplomacy. And William Shatner starred in an all-Esperanto movie. Just a dolce. Still, the universal tongue was never universally spoken. Only about two million people understand it, and just 2,000 of those were raised to speak it from birth. One of those native Esperantists is George Soros, among the wealthiest billionaires in the world. So that was the history lesson. Now it's time for the booze. I'm on the line with Jonathan Pogash. He's the director for cocktail development at the World Bar, which is right across the street from the United Nations, um, a place that you know should be speaking Esperanto, but they don't. How, how are you, Jonathan? I am well. How about yourself? I'm good, thanks. So, I'd love to learn Esperanto. Is that possible? <laughs> well, you're a bartender. I think you've learned the closest equivalent we have in this modern world, the drink. That's exactly, the universal <laughs> language. So you heard the history lesson. What, uh, what cocktail did it inspire you to make? A highball drink called the Zamenhof. Fizz. The Zamenhof Fizz. All right. He seems like quite an inspirational man and uh, has lots of languages under his belt. So I tried to incorporate several ingredients from around the world, mainly locations where he uh, was raised and visited. So the, the base ingredient happens to be a Polish potato vodka called Chopin. Chopin, okay. And I add this nice fresh apricot liqueur from a company called Rothman and Winter. They're out of Austria, so it's an Austrian liqueur. I see we're moving closer to the U.S. here. Yes, uh, about half ounce of the apricot liqueur. Uh, just to balance out that sweetness, I do a little bit of freshly squeezed lemon juice. Okay, and the lemon can be from anywhere? That's right, it could be from anywhere. Okay. Uh, and to add a little bit of spice to it, I add a little bit of ginger beer to that as well. All right. Mainly Caribbean, but... You know, it's enjoyed worldwide. And it's amazing. You've been able to make a potato and apricot live in harmony together. Exactly. Who'd have thunk, huh? <laughs> Do you ever see people that are supposed to be enemies, you know, the Palestinian delegation and the Israeli delegation, and they're just having cocktails, like, at the bar? Absolutely. It, <laughs> really? It really brings countries together. You know, in most countries, they have their own national spirit, and they call it 
water of life in that language. You know, vodka is voda or water in Russian. So maybe the secret to world harmony is they should just turn the entire United Nations into a humongous bar. They, they should, yes, exactly. A beautiful I'm, I'm, round bar. <laughs> I'm staring across the street at the United Nations right now, and actually the building itself looks like a bottle of something. So, Brendan, suvi parolas Esperanto? Ixne, I pixe, igpe, atenle. Yes, pig Latin, the other international language. That's right. But maybe we could both learn Esperanto, and then people could listen to our show all over the world. That's a good idea. William Shatner could be our guest host. I would like that. <laughs> he could. And then people will listen all over the galaxy. Perfect. All right, folks, if you want to communicate with our drink recipes, they're all at dinnerpartydownload.org. Danko. And now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today, our guest is comedian and actor Paul Scheer. He stars in the TV show The League on FX, and also in the Adult Swim series called NTSF SDSUV. It starts a new season this week. Here's Paul to explain the show's title and share his list. That stands for National Terrorism Strike Force San Diego Sport Utility Vehicle, a parody of all those overdone police procedurals like NCIS LA, CSI Miami, and like five other CSI shows. We fight terrorism in all forms. Sometimes that is in the form of a dolphin. Sam, we need to go through those dolphin mugshots again. Other times it's uh, in the form of comic book nerds. So we have a very loose uh, definition of terrorist. As you can tell, I'm a huge fan of parody, so I figured what better way to celebrate parody than to give you my list of my favorite parody television shows. Some easy to find, others not so much. My first pick is a little-known show that was on one of the BBC channels. It's called Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Now, the premise of this show is that this character, Garth Marenghi, a horror writer, made a show in the 1980s about a haunted supernatural hospital. Think of like a, a bad version of Stephen King or Clive Barker. And each episode that we see on TV is supposedly an episode that aired back in the 80s. The show is really a celebration of terrible horror writing, awful acting, and cheap 1980s drama production. It's just that I've been hearing some things. What things? A lot of things. Strange things. Crazy things. Things, Dag. Things. Things. It's one of the funniest shows from the acting being so bad. Well, you shouldn't believe everything you hear, Thornton. You're hiding something, Dag. I could swear it. I'm surprised that no one's seen it. I guess the niche is hard to describe because it's not like, oh, they parody hospital shows. Oh, it's not like they parody horror. They're making fun of a horror writer who would be writing a 1980s hospital show. So you're getting like almost three different parodies. It's a very small niche, but it definitely uh, scratches an itch that I have. My number two pick is actually a very new one. It's an internet-only web series called Burning Love, and it's a parody of The Bachelor. There he is, Mark Orlando. Ken Marino, he plays a character named Mark Orlando, best reality show guy's name of all time. How you doing, buddy? Oh, man. Hey, Phil, is this happening or what? Now, here's how it's going to go down. In a minute, 16 beautiful women are going to arrive here at the mansion. And at the end of the evening, 
you're going to send five of them home. Five of them? Even though it's slightly embarrassing to admit, I am a huge fan of The Bachelor, and it parodies all the elements of The Bachelor that make you go, what? Jennifer Aniston is actually someone who gets rejected from the show right away, uh, spoiler alert, because she's wearing a bear costume. She wanted somebody to uh, respect her for what's inside, not outside. So I will be wearing this costume until we get to know each other a little bit better. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Even if you're not a huge fan of The Bachelor, you'll love Burning Love because not only is it a spot-on parody of The Bachelor, it's just a spot-on parody of reality television. Cast, writing, everything, perfection. My third pick... Tonight from Fernwood, Fernwood Tonight, 30 minutes of something... ...is Fernwood Tonight, a parody of a public access talk show. And it starred Martin Mull and Fred Willard back in 1977. It only ran for a season, and the premise of the show is a guy in the middle of Ohio thinking that he's Johnny Carson. So he's treating everybody as if he's a big shot. And they bring on local people like the mayor and then occasionally amazing guests like Tom Waits. He comes to us quite by accident. Um, literally, his van broke down on a way to a concert in Toledo. <laughs> Tom, where, where do you hail from professionally? Is it the Big Apple, as they call New York, I think? Or is it Hollywood? Yeah. Or, uh... I live at Bedlam and Squalor. They have real people on the show, but it's all written. And you want to talk about a writing staff. Norman Lear wrote on this. So if you're a fan of Tim and Eric and what they do with all their public access parody, then you need to check out Fernwood tonight because these are the guys who did it first and arguably the best. That's it for tonight. Thanks for watching. The guest list from comedian and actor Paul Shear. He stars in the crime show parody NTSF SDSUV. Yeah. <laughs> Couldn't wait to say that again, which returns this week to Adult Swim. By the way, do you think if we made our show a parody that Tom Waits would visit? That Wait, would be great. This isn't a parody show? <laughs> <laughs> All right. I guess not. Coming up, actor Rashida Jones creates a new film genre. Uh, maybe can we call it a rom-com drum? It's also a great dance beat when the dinner party continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, Sid Butler of the band Les Savi Fav is here with a true life tale. Also, we sample some schmancy Pop-Tarts. But first, it's time to meet our guest of honor. It is. And this week, it's actress Rashida Jones. You may know her from her roles in TV shows like Parks and Recreation, The Office, and Boston Public. She's also appeared in the movies I Love You, Man and The Social Network. This week, she stars in the new movie Celeste and Jesse Forever, which she also co-wrote with her writing partner, Will McCormick. Man. She's pretty busy, like the character in her film, which is about a young married couple who grow apart and separate. It's romantic and funny, but not quite a rom-com. It's dramatic at times, but not quite a drama. So when I met with her, I asked her, how does she describe it? I think it's, maybe, can we call it a rom-com drama? Oh, I like that. A drum rom-com. A drum rom-com. That's great. Better rhythm. Yeah. Drum rom-com. Yeah, that's how I would describe it. It's not easy blending different genres like that, right? I mean, there's a reason that they're standard film conventions. Well, you know, it was difficult to write just because it's hard to write, and I had never written anything before. Also, because we love rom-coms so much, and especially the ones from the 70s and 80s, Annie Hall, Broadcast News, When Harry Met Sally, we wanted to do something in that style. Those movies didn't really have to pick. They kind of have a drum rom-com feeling where you leave and you... You're left with a, a a feeling, a message, there's a theme, but you laughed 
You laughed. You laughed a little. You cried a little. You also said that you wanted to write a film about heartache, and broken hearts. Did you learn anything during the writing process about heartache? Yeah, I did. I learned that my character in the movie says, how could he do this to me? Most people aren't trying to break your heart. They don't set out to break your heart. They're just trying to figure out what they want and how they want it. And uh, you happen to be in the way. And the sooner you get over the uh, feeling that it's personal, the sooner you get over the heartache. And both the main characters in this film, you know, experience that collateral damage. Your character, Celeste, she's very smart. She runs a successful media consulting company. She's the type A driven, successful woman uh, who thinks she has all the answers. And her ex, played by Andy Samberg, is the slacker artist type. Tell me about what it was like to write these characters, because you must have been mindful that they're both kind of archetypes. I think that conventions are conventions for a reason, because they work. Archetypes work. We have so many movies to prove that to us. So we wanted to start there. We wanted to start with, we did a little bit of the falling in love story, and we used these archetypes to kind of as they said on Family Guy, the busy businesswoman, busy doing business meetings. Um, and then the slacker, you know, the, this kind of Judd Apatow model of guy that's kind of a new archetype. And we also wanted to do this thing where we take the woman who has it all figured out and then she realizes she doesn't. But then we wanted to take it four steps further, you know, and make sure that when she's in pain, she doesn't still sit like on a beautiful couch in like a totally neat apartment, like, like sniffling with like one tissue watching a movie. Like, I, I wanted to make sure that that character like didn't wash her hair and was wearing crazy cat lady clothes. That was You succeeded. Thanks. Thanks. <laughs> I have to admit though, even though the slacker guy, ambitious girl thing has become kind of a trope, uh, every time I see it, I, I think to myself, how does this guy end up with such a smart, beautiful woman? You know, that's not, I don't, I don't really think that's how life works. <laughs> I do think there's a dynamic that's happened. Maybe it's the, maybe it's the post, post, uh, postscript of the original feminist movement, which is that women can do anything. They can nurture, they can run companies, they can have babies, they can choose to freeze their eggs, they can never have children, they can do they can do whatever they want basically. And men haven't really had a movement that's allowed them to like run the gamut of things to do. Like it's still weird for men to be kind of sensitive or stay home with kids or work in public radio. Wow. I know you stereotyped me, Rashida, when I walked in here. <laughs> You've proved everyone wrong. Thanks. All right. I interrupted you. See, I'm not that sensitive. <laughs> I'm a typical male. Continue. Yeah. So anyway, I think what's happened is men have not, I mean, I know all these great women who are in their mid-30s, uh, early 40s, smart, cool, stable, beautiful, who want men and they want partners and they can't find them because I think like the one way that men can still empower themselves is to wear hoodies, like play video games. I'm just giving you my business card to pass along to those women you know. Really? Yeah. Oh, good. You're a good catch. But if I set you up, you know, you got, you got to... I'll comb my hair. You got to deliver. Of course I can deliver. <laughs> All right, moving on. You are someone who the term slacker could never be applied to. You were voted most likely to succeed in high school, I believe. Um, were you happy with that title, or would you have preferred a different title? No, I, I wanted that title. I, I was a good girl. I was a hard worker. I was, you know, in every single club in, like, a Rushmore way, even made-up clubs. But uh, that was 
that was always kind of my MO was like, be good at everything. And then, you know, and then you realize that it doesn't mean anything. Well, that's reassuring for some of us. Um, all right. We have two standard questions on our show. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked in interviews? I would say probably questions about my parents. I love my parents. They're the best. Or I'm 36 years old, you know, and, and they're clearly successful and wonderful. But And for those who don't know your parents, Quincy Jones and Peggy Lipton. They're the greatest. It's just I have nothing else to say about their careers. Okay. Well, maybe people will start asking them about you when they're being interviewed. Uh, we have another standard question. It's actually a request uh, we ask of our guests, which is, tell us something we don't know, either about you or it can be an interesting fact about the world. Okay, I, I love trivial facts, obsessed with them, so much so, in fact, that Amy Poehler, when she wrote her episode of Parks and Rec this year, Rex? Rec. Why are you looking at me? It's, it's your show. Parks and Rec. Um, she, she had my character exploring trivial facts, but one of my favorites is that pretzels, little known fact, were originally created as treats in monasteries because if you look at it, it's a hand, hands in, a, in prayer surrounded by a circle. Wow. That is interesting. It's real. Although a pretzel's kind of ornate. You'd think that a monastery would go for, you know, like a pretzel stick, something a little more, you know, I know. plain. I know, you're right. But I think it was for, like, the kids that came to the monastery, so that I guess we're trying to make it more fun and round. Do you think that they maybe put pretzels out so people would stick around, like, for happy, like a happy hour, so they'd stick around church? Probably. You have, to, you have to coax kids into religion, so I'm sure that's part of it. Like complimentary pretzels. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're free. Pretzel trivia. I like it. Um, here's the interesting thing, though. I actually knew about that. I think I read that fact in Scholastic Magazine or something when I was a... Brendan, are you listening to your iPod right now? What? No. Let me hear that. You're a good catch. You're a good catch. You're a good catch. What? Can I have that back now? After you read your line. You have a job to do. Folks, if you miss us between shows, you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, where our handle is DinnerPartyDNLD. Can I have that back? No. Eavesdrop. Sid Butler plays bass for adored New York indie band Les Sabifav. He just published his first humor book. Today we overhear him telling the true dinner party worthy tale that inspired one of the stories. Hello, my name is Sid Butler. I recently released a book called Who Farted Wrong. It's a book of drawings and short stories of my life being in the band Les Sabifav and being obsessed with ice hockey. Since I was eight years old, I've been obsessed with hockey. I think about it all the time. It's a problem. I went to a game when I was a kid. I drank the Kool-Aid. No other sport compares. I didn't play hockey growing up. I just watched the game obsessively. And it wasn't until I had gone to college at RISD, uh, I started learning how to skate. And then when I moved to New York, I joined a men's team that was terrible, and I was terrible. And slowly over time, any time I could play, I would hop over to Chelsea Piers at an ice rink and practice, practice, practice. Every time I can go to Chelsea Piers and try to skate, it's a true pleasure and it's like a secret. You know, other guys go to bars or other guys do things. I try to be an ice rink rat. They have this specialized hockey training called Blue Streak. You're in a small room with this fake ice treadmill and they harness you in and you skate 
on a, a pill treadmill. It's bizarre resin or plastic. I don't know how it works, but it's amazing and gets you in great hockey shape. So as I started training with this Blue Streak hockey program, I, my partner was this guy named Bill. And he was 70-year-old, an older gentleman and very sweet. And, and we just started talking and relating. And over the course of a summer, we became close friends. And we never talked about anything else. And it was refreshing to never ask someone, oh, what do you do for a living? Or do you have kids? Or just nothing that comes up with people right away. So we had taken a break from the training at one point, and, I, and when we resumed training, uh, he'd asked me how my break was, and I told him that I'd seen this amazing movie about the band Joy Division called Control. And if you don't know who Joy Division are, you should look them up. The band defined contemporary modern music at the time as extremely revolutionary and defined as punk, but I think now we'd consider it poppy. Funny how that happens. But I was sitting in a room with Biff Bill, and I was telling him about Joy Division and this movie that I saw and how much I loved it. And he surprised me by saying that he A, knew of Joy Division and that he had worked on a couple of videos with their later band, New Order. And it just shocked me that he knew the band. And then I realized I had no idea who this guy, this stranger, and this close friend of mine was that I had just basically sweated next to for two months. And I then asked him what he did for a living, and he said, oh, I'm an artist and do a lot of stuff with my dogs. And then me being entitled, arrogant, I don't know, I said, oh, cool, do you know William Wegman? And with a wry smile and a twinkle in his eye, he said, I am William Wegman. Then I just paid him a bunch of compliments and said that I studied his stuff at RISD in film and video. And, and then I was standing in the locker room in my underwear, and he was in his, and I didn't know what to do. A true tale from Sid Butler of indie band Les Savvy Fav. William Wegman has a new art show up at Bowdoin College in Maine right now. And you're listening to The Dinner Party from American Public Media. And now it's time for the main course, where we talk about the best part of any dinner party, the food. And Brendan, it pains me to say it. But I love Pop-Tarts. You do love Pop-Tarts. A lot. Ironically, it might be your love of Pop-Tarts causing you the pain. Yes. I eat way too many of them. And uh, health-conscious folk are fond of noting that these are among the least healthy snacks that a person can Mm -hmm. eat. But I don't smoke. I don't Mm -hmm. drink nearly as much as the show may make it sound. You're allowed this one vice. Yeah. We can can make an exception. For God's sake. But look, I'm not saying that Pop-Tarts can't be improved upon. And actually, this week, I think they were. On Monday, the L.A. County Museum of Art opened a new coffee shop called C Plus M, where they sell a handmade pastry version of the Pop-Tart. I immediately met up with their pastry chef, Josh Graves. We started by talking some Pop-Tart history. I do know that they sort of started back in the 50s. 60s, actually. (laughs) See, I'm not that big a fan. So toaster pastries came out in the 60s, and to my understanding, they were kind of the first foods to be kept fresh with a foil wrapping, is that right? Yeah, Post created what was called the country squares and they were unglazed and they sold them in um, foil, they packed them in foil. It was the first consumable product packed in foil. And then uh, Kellogg actually 
caught onto it before the post one really took off, and they launched the Pop Tarts in uh, 1967, I believe. I guess they sort of won the competition. I guess. Exactly, they won definitely. Country squares doesn't sound right. It seems like it's a little too close to cow patties for me. <laughs> but here's my question: Was there some actual antecedent, you know, like some actual pastry that is like the Pop-Tart that existed before the 60s? I think the closest thing would be your English pasty. It's similar, but way different. I mean, the pasty has many different flavors. You can fill it with anything. It's often savory, right? Very often savory, yeah. The reason I ask is, was that perhaps your inspiration for doing these things, or is the Pop-Tart itself your inspiration? Uh, the Pop-Tart itself was my inspiration. I mean, I, I grew up on the brown sugar and cinnamon Pop-Tarts like, for breakfast every day. and Well, not every day, but, you know, and uh, I wanted to just take it to the next level. You're like, this wasn't good enough. Yeah, exactly. Want more filling. Because it is. It's a very thin layer of filling inside the typical Pop-Tart. Yes, definitely. More filling is my... And more butter. More filling and more buttery goodness. And I'm hoping less preservatives. Oh, no preservatives. All right, so what are we, we're looking at two of these things right now. They're not brown sugar cinnamon. What are the flavors here? Oh, we have a lemon lavender Pop-Tart, which is a lavender-infused lemon curd between sheets of paprise, which is a buttery, savory crust. And then we have the bacon and date Pop-Tart, which is bacon and dates cooked with a touch of brandy, pureed, balanced with sherry vinegar and salt. See, now that last one, that is, it's so English pasty to me. Like, to me, I'm looking at it right now and it's like a dream come true. Because <laughs> I am also a big fan of English pasties, especially uh, steak and ale pies. Good stuff. So you've kind of done that. It's a savory, it's like a savory Pop-Tart. Yeah, it's, uh, to me it's got the, balance, the perfect balance of sweet and savory. Because you have the very intense sweetness of the dates and the intense smokiness and saltiness of the bacon and they play very well off each other and in my experience with pastry my favorite stuff has been sweet and savory. Um, I'm gonna save that for last. I'll start with the first one which is the lemon curd. Sorry. Uh, lemon and lavender. I am seeing it is probably about twice the thickness actually of a pop-tart but it really does look like a pop-tart it's kind of cool except wait a minute I have to check something on the back I'm flipping it with one hand because I'm holding a microphone with my other hand so it's a little hard. It has the holes on the back. Of course. What are those holes for in the first place? Those are to release steam so that when you bake it, it doesn't puff up too much. Okay, so there's actually, that's not just because there's some like machine that they made it with? It's a technique. Yeah, it's actually necessary. Yeah, it's necessary. So even in that way, it does kind of look like a Pop-Tart, but twice the thickness. And also it has icing on top and it goes almost to the edge, which is the thing that I've always been upset with Pop-Tarts about. They always have that dry edge and with no icing. No flavor. <laughs> Well, you've changed all that. All right, I'll take a bite of this. <laughs> that is so light and flaky. There must be a, this is a good thing, by the way, but I'm assuming there really is like a ton of butter in there to make it that light. A ton of butter. <laughs> Can I ask how much? Should I ask? I, I'm not too sure, actually, how much butter is in one. In the lemon curd, there's, there's a bit of butter, and in the paprise itself, there's a decent amount of butter. Sweet. So maybe we could take a regular Pop-Tart and just butter it and semi-approximate this. Semi. All right. <laughs> I would eat more of this, but then I won't have any room for this other deal, so I'm going to try it. Bacon and date. And what's the frosting on top? It's just 
powdered sugar and water with a little bit of butter and uh, bacon lardons on top. I like how you put just in front of that. Oh, it's just, you know, sugar and bacon lardons and butter. Gotta have the butter. One other thing, by the way, bacon and sweet and savory things has kind of been a trend for quite a while now. Are you thinking about maybe putting other stuff in here? Because I can imagine like short rib working in here, any kind of stewy filling could work. Yeah, I haven't quite thought about going the complete savory route, but that, that sounds really interesting, doing a completely savory one. I like that. Well, we'll see. First, I'm going to eat this thing. Here we go. Mmm, that's great. I was really expecting it to be more bacony, but it's kind of just the right amount of bacony for balance, me anyway. Balance. How hard is that too? Because I know bacon has a tendency to overwhelm anything. You have to find a bacon that's not too smoky. I use a Nooski's bacon. It's a pretty smoky bacon, but uh, in the whole recipe for the puree, there's maybe a pound of bacon and two, two pounds of dates. Last question. These are too thick to actually put in a toaster. Are they really Pop-Tarts? They can't pop up out of the toaster. Yes, they, it's, it's a Pop-Tart in quotations. What actually do these come out of, I'm assuming, a oven? Oh, well, in a convection oven, yeah. But if you wanted to toast them in a toaster oven, it would totally work. All right, thank you very much for uh, letting me eat these. This was all basically a thinly veiled attempt to get free Pop-Tarts. We'll see if this even goes on the air, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Turns out I don't have a radio show. I'm just some guy. So Rico sounds delicious. It was. Not exactly a health alternative to the Pop-Tart, though. <laughs> no. Until we discover <laughs> that butter, sugar, and bacon are actually superfoods, which I'm hoping scientists will discover any day now. Yeah, these will be the magic scientists that live in your brain. Those are the ones. All right. We will read those findings on the astrology page. <laughs> Folks, coming up, a new tune from indie supergroup The Babies, mm. plus Reading Rainbow's LeVar Burton really wants that book back that he lent you. I looked for that book, and I remembered you have it, so here I am. You had damned well better have it. <laughs> All that and more when the dinner party returns. Welcome back to The Dinner Party, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll hear a new track from the new band, The Babies. Appropriate name. Oh, and yeah. coming up, crime writer Ariel S. Winner talks about three masters of noir fiction, some of whom you may not have heard of because they flew under your raid noir. Oh. <laughs> but first, it's time for our etiquette segment. Each week, you send us your questions about how to behave. And we invite someone amazing to come on and answer them. And this week, we are happy to have LeVar Burton with us. In the 70s, he starred as Kunta Kinte in the historic hit TV miniseries Roots. He played Geordi on TV's Star Trek The Next Generation. You can see him now on the TNT crime drama Perception, which debuted this month. But he is perhaps most beloved as the host of the PBS show Reading Rainbow, which for 23 years got kids excited about books. This summer, the show relaunched in the form of an educational computer app. And LeVar, welcome. Thank you so much. I laugh because during that whole introduction, you were gesturing at me to be less lavish with my praise of you. No, no, no. no. you I embarrassed was... about being beloved? Well, no. I'm, yes. In <laughs> fact, I am. But you said 23 years, and I was signaling that it was actually 25. But it depends on how you count, whether or uh, not yes. you count when we actually stopped 
stopped making episodes in 2006 or when PBS stopped airing it in 2009. Well, it's not called counting rainbow. Yeah, you taught us how to read, not how to count. <laughs> not how to cipher. I understand. It's all good. Maybe you should start another show. There's your sequel. Counting rainbows. Counting rainbows. I think that's a Grateful Dead show, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Before we get to the app, yeah. let us talk about just books in general. You yeah. hosted Reading Rainbow for all those years. Yeah. Why was that project so important to you? Literacy is important to me. Reading, you know, I grew up in a house where my mom was uh, was insistent that not only we read, but we really understand the value literacy brings to a human being. You can educate yourself. That's huge for evolution. She was a teacher. My mother was, yeah. She was an English teacher, and then she was a social worker. And she comes from a long line of people who believe in A, education, and B, in a life of service. A certain generation regards that show so fondly. Yes. Why not just make another TV show? Why make it an app? Because the intention is to reach the next generation. And they don't watch TV? They don't watch TV as much as your generation did or my generation. They use a lot of different screens. So in order to reach them, you've got to be on some of those other screens that are occupying their attention. So this is Reading Rainbow, The Next Generation. This is Reading Rainbow, The Next Generation. (laughs) Why didn't you call the app that? I don't know. You can have that. We can give you that idea. You know what? In your hearts, you can call it The Next Generation. All right. We will. Okay. Well, we have some etiquette questions. Maybe you can help us with that. Wow. This could be dangerous because... um, You're an impolite person? No, but I (laughs) I do tell the truth. Oh, well, that's good. Okay. All right. So this question comes from Martin, who is from New Hampshire... And he asks, what's the best way to ask for your book back from a friend who borrowed it, say, three years ago? Is it hardback or paperback? <laughs> he, he doesn't specify. Well, this is really important because paperback books are meant to give away. Hardback books, I tend to want back. So oh. if you've got my hardcover copy of anything and I come to you three years later and say, I'd like my book back, yeah. you had damned well better have. Because <laughs> I loaned you a hardback copy wow. of whatever it was I was reading. And for you, does that symbolize excellent friendship? If you lend somebody a hardback oh book, God. you must really have high regard for them. And, and so, A, I'd be surprised, but not shocked that it's taken you three years to get it back to me. Mm-hmm. And B, I'd have to reevaluate your character <laughs> if you didn't have my book. So the polite thing to do, there is no polite thing. It's like, it's, I gave you my book. I gave you back. my book. You have to tell the truth. Just say, I gave you my book. You need to give it back. It's been three years, and I haven't really needed it until now. But now I'm, I looked for that book, and I remembered you have it. So here I am. <laughs> At your door with an axe. It's not, I don't have an axe. No, no. And then, and then, LeVar, what's your policy after that? If Would you lend another hardback book to that friend? Good point. Not if that person didn't have my book after three years, no. Okay. But if he did, or she... I would think about it. I would reevaluate which book I loaned mm-hmm. to that person. Is it one that I think I'm going to need soon? Probably. That's not one I'm going to loan. Wait, LeVar, you probably get every free book in the universe. No, I so. don't. No, I don't. I wish I did. Really? I, I wish I being me was like a ticket to free <laughs> books from the universe. I guess in a way it is. It, in a way it is. I mean, I, I just recently saw one of three perfect copies of the Gutenberg Bible wow. at uh, the National Archives at the, in Washington, D.C., Did they give it to you? Right. (laughs) Because you have to give it back if they ask. (laughs) They they let me see it. They let me see it. Okay. We believe you. Uh, Here's Katie. She sent this in to us via Facebook. Katie writes, when someone mocks your favorite fantasy sci-fi show, how does one respond graciously? I don't know what they could be talking about. I have no clue. Um, That is a real good question. Fandoms can tend to, you know, make one hyper-passionate. Yes. Yeah, you probably know better than most. Uh, Well, as a fan of Star Trek, I get it, you know. I mean, and I've always been a fan. If if I wasn't Geordi, I would be going to conventions, (laughs) trying trying to... Stalking Geordi. Yeah, stalking Geordi, yeah, because... (laughs) 
That's scary. Because my wow. fandom for Star Trek is just, you know, I, I love Star Trek. So what do you do? Like you're a Star Trek fan. Yes. Somebody says, Star Trek, that's your stupid. I, I think as a Star Trek fan, you would probably be used to having a point of view that is not everyone else's <laughs> by now. Right. Right? Yeah. And yeah. so you have to, yeah, you have to have a, either a thick skin or really be into pain <laughs> and, and suffering, you know? The meek What's... shall inherit the earth, right? So sci-fi fans turn the other cheek and eventually. Eventually, you'll get yours. Yeah. It's interesting you guys say that because I am not a sci-fi fan. Yeah. And when sometimes when I'm at a dinner party, the opposite happens. Which is? And we had this question as well, which is when you're at a party and everyone starts diving deep into some reference or topic that mm-hmm. you're oblivious to, like sci-fi, how do you stay engaged in the conversation, you know? And this happens with especially Star Trek people. They start talking Star Trek and you feel excluded. That's why balance is really important. Really? Is it okay to stand up on a chair and shout nerds? That's what I've been doing. <laughs> really? And yeah. how's that working for you, as Dr. Phil would say? It seems impolite. It seems like that's not really a great idea. Okay. The middle path. I like the middle path. Which is what? In a situation like this, if it were me, I would either fake it like I was really following or okay. <laughs> I would wait for a break in the conversation and find someone to engage with on a level that oh, yeah. I could relate. Maybe say something like, hey guys, I'm an actual human being. I'm on this <laughs> that's, planet. That's not what I would suggest. No. And um, I have some things to talk about. <laughs> oh wait, that's not as interesting as Picard. Next please, question, please. <laughs> All right, we have one more. And this one, um, I think we have some audio tape. This comes from Evan, age 11, from Pittsburgh. Age 11? Yes. yes. All right. Let's roll the tape. All right. Hello, I'm one leg. When you're at a friend's house and you're not that hungry, but they offer you food, is it okay to turn it down or do you eat it anyway and stuff yourself? Okay, so does Evan have to eat food he's been offered at a friend's house even if he's not hungry? Evan, that is a really good question and comes up surprisingly a lot. Here's my honest response to your question. It really depends. There are some cultures where it is actually impolite as a guest to refuse food. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Chinese culture, they greet you with, have you eaten yet? Food and sustenance is at the top of the list of things that people care about. Yeah. If you're in America, it's we don't have that sort of a cultural attachment to food. But you know what? I would add to Evan, I think you're right. There's cultural difference. But don't you think it's default? If you accept people's food, they'll always be happy. Low-hanging fruit to ingratiate yourself is to say, mmm, this is delicious. But on the other hand, we have an obesity problem in this country. Do we want to be telling kids to accept whatever food is offered to them? And that's my point. I think all of these questions fall into the category of of discernment is really the key. I, I love the word discernment because it has a real concrete symbol in the world that you can really relate to. A knife is a symbol for discernment. A knife can be a weapon or a tool. It depends on the wielder who determines mm. the purpose. And so that's what discernment actually is. Discerning which what you use the tool for. What is m- the best, most appropriate behavior I can demonstrate in this now moment? My grandmother would have wielded the knife if I didn't eat something she offered me. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. All right, well, Evan, you'll have to use your discernment to figure out what's best for you in this situation. But the good news is, that true to his duties as a reading rainbow host. Yeah. LeVar just taught you a new word. Discernment is the word of the day, y'all, so use it liberally and don't forget it tomorrow. LeVar Burton, it was a joy to have you on the show. Thanks for telling our audience how to behave. Thanks, guys. Butterfly in the sky I can go twice as high Take a look It's in a book A reading rainbow LeVar Burton, you can download his Reading Rainbow app at the iTunes store. You can also see him in the crime drama Perception on TNT. And see, I had no idea that not eating was a capital offense at your grandmother's house. You know? See, there you go. Who knows what other etiquette rules are out there? And ladies and gentlemen, the only way we can find out is if you send us your questions. 
You it's will, true. You will find our email at our website. It's dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time for Chattering Class, the part of the show where we are schooled by an expert in some dinner party-worthy topic. This week, the subjects are three legendary crime novel writers, and our teacher is Ariel S. Winter. This week, his debut noir crime novel, The 20-Year Death, comes out, and it's already being called one of the boldest books of the year. It's actually three novels in one, each set in a different decade, the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and each written in the style of a different classic crime author of that decade. And Ariel, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. The book is over 700 pages long. It'd be hard enough to write it in one voice. You've chosen three, and none of them your own. You write in the style of the authors Georges Simignon, Raymond Chandler, and Jim Thompson. Why? What made you conceive of such a thing? Uh, When I first set out to write the book, it was a completely different book in which there was going to be a first-person narrator who was reading a bunch of different books, and I wanted to present the books that he was reading in full. Sort of a novel within a novel. Correct, yes, several. And the first one that I uh, wrote became the first book in The 20-Year Death. So you started off writing books within a book, and they became the book. Correct. It's even more meta than it appears at first. That's right. Well, let's start. For those who are intrigued by the concept but unfamiliar with these authors, teach us about them. There's Georges Simignon. Uh, I admit I had not heard of him until your book. He was a Belgian writer, correct? Correct. He was a Belgian writer, although he lived most of his life in France, internationally famous, but not quite as much in the United States. When the Times in the U.K., drew up their list of the 50 best crime writers of the 20th century. Simeon was number two. Uh, That's above Agatha Christie, above Raymond Chandler. Outside of the United States, he is revered. Do you think there's a reason for that? Something culturally that doesn't translate? No, I don't think that's it at all. I think one is just the sheer number of books that he wrote. He wrote at least 200 books under his name and others under other names. And so it's hard to figure out where to begin. And there isn't a good entry point. Well, can you read a line from your book that you actually think captures Simeon's style? Sure. Um, Simeon was very much about setting the scene. So let me give you a sense of that. The rain was holding steady, but Pelletier had refused to ride to the house, preferring to see the town on foot. The baker's house where the body had been found was in another quarter of the town to the north, but that didn't mean anything. The town was not very large. Maprice could have been on his way to see his daughter, or he could have already been there, and there was still the matter of who had helped him out of the prison and who would want to. So very kind of straightforward with a little bit of insight. Yes. He's, like Hemingway, believed that if a sentence stood out, it should be cut. It needed to be as clean as possible. You know, another interesting thing, he was the interview in the Paris Review in their ninth issue. Wow. A year or two before Faulkner, before Hemingway. So he was recognized even as a mystery writer at the time as being an important writer. A literary writer as well. Correct. Well, let's move on to a second guy who's uh, probably a little less dry, I would say. Raymond Chandler. Right. Pretty well-known name in American fiction. He's one of the authors who helped invent the hard-boiled detective. Well, he he didn't invent the character. Black Mask Magazine is usually considered to be the place where that kind of pulp hero... Uh, started. So Chandler, when he decided to take a stab at writing fiction professionally, chose that vein because I think he felt that it was something he could sell. But he just kind of did it better than they did. One of the reasons he did end up being somewhat better is that he would take a little bit more time than was probably wise financially. (laughs) 
a lot of these writers, you know, they needed to crank it out so that they would get paid. Chandler spent three months on his first story. Although still, you know, by by the standards of modern writing, that's not actually that long. Right. Well, and then, of course, you know, Simeon wrote all of his books in 11 days. What? Yeah. That's one reason he's written a couple hundred. <laughs> that's true. I didn't think about it. It would have taken him 200 years if he'd taken a year right. on each. So how about your favorite Chandler S sentence from the book? Uh, sure. I pulled out of the car but didn't close the door. A short, squat Mexican stood backlit in the entrance of the garage. He wore a red velvet dinner jacket that was too big for him and matching pants that were cuffed at the bottom. He was a young man, old enough to show a little class, but not so old that he couldn't best you in a fight. The Luger in his right hand didn't hurt his chances either. There's <laughs> always the gun. And it's right. always kind of like offhandedly noted. Yeah, he's got a gun. Right. That's sort of par for the course. Correct. That's, that's why I, uh, I chose that paragraph because I do think it's very Chandler. All right. Well, finally, your, your third writing sort of avatar, I guess, was Jim Thompson. My understanding is that he wasn't that highly regarded until later on. Is that true? Yes, that's definitely true. Last couple decades. What about Thompson do you think speaks to us today? I think his nihilism, he really believed the worst <laughs> and was willing to have his characters. Usually they actually narrate their own death at the end. <laughs> Part of, part of that was, you know, he wrote 11 books in two years. He just, he wasn't thinking. He was just putting out whatever came into his mind. But I also think that he believed the story wasn't over until the end. And until kind of the ultimate end, the death. The ultimate end. Yeah, death or sometimes even arguably slightly beyond death. Several of his novels at the end, you're not sure if it's really happening or if they're actually in purgatory or what's going on. Wow. You know, he was called the dime store Dostoevsky. But I don't think Dostoevsky would have ever had any of his characters end up on some mystical <laughs> resort where their souls were owned by the resort owners. Um, all right. So how about a Jim Thompson-esque sentence from your book? Sure. I was one poor bastard. If I had known how much of our marriage was going to be screaming at each other and trying to outdo the other with lover after lover, pill after pill, drink after drink, I would have, at least I hope... Yeah, I would have called it off. And when we got to Paris, we didn't care anymore. It was all at war. Wow. And on that happy note, <laughs> Ariel S. Winter, he's the author of The 20-Year Death. Thanks for schooling us today. And thank you for having me. So, Brendan, there's a few authors yeah. whose books you can read the next time you're alone on a dark night in a city that never sleeps. You know? Sure, but if it's too dark, reading will strain my eyes, so uh, probably won't. Yeah. yeah, then I guess there's nothing for it but to shoot back some rot gut and curse the coppers who sent you up the river on a bum rap. I'm sorry, I don't speak noir, dude. Oh, that's too bad. <laughs> sorry. Uh, folks, that's the dinner party for this week. Be sure to tune in next week when we speak with superstar conductor Gustavo Dudamel. Thanks to superstar assistant producer Jackson Musker, Tamika Adams, and James Kim, our interns for the dinner party. Thanks also to Bill Lance and Peter Clowney. And now before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to, returning from, this week's dinner parties. The Babies are an indie rock Voltron, formed from parts of the Vivian Girls and the band Woods. They have a new 7-inch coming out on Woodsist Records in a couple of weeks. The song is called Moonlight Mile, no relation to the Rolling Stones song. Bon appétit. You better watch your step. Show respect Or you'll be here a while 
Thanks for attending the dinner party. I am Rico Galliano. And I am Brendan Francis Noonan. Or for our international audience, Rendon Bay Rancis Fe Unumne. He say Uye X Neikwe.